Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 8 of the Second Age of the Crusaders and the subject is the Fifth Crusade and the Siege of Damietta. Now, as I mentioned last time, the Fifth Crusade isn't often talked about and I think it's a big mistake because it was a major military expedition that occupied centre stage in European politics at the time. In the last episode, we heard how the main attack was on Egypt and how Pope Honorius appointed an interest character called Cardinal Pelagius as his papal legate. Now Pelagius basically took control of the crusade from King John of Jerusalem and the other crusader leaders on the basis that it was only the German emperor Frederick who was senior enough to lead it and of course Frederick wasn't there. He'd promised to join it but was a long way from getting there which gave Pelagius a very convenient excuse to take control. Now Pelagius had many good qualities as a leader such as energy and enthusiasm but he certainly wasn't a soldier and he wasn't a diplomat. So, as you'll hear, there's always been a long debate about whether if a soldier, like, say, Richard the Lionheart, had led the expedition, it would actually have succeeded in re-establishing Outremer and changing the course of history. But having said that, the crusade still made considerable progress in Egypt and will join it at the Siege of Damietta, which, as you'll hear, would become one of the largest military engagements in Crusader history. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. In October 1218, the Crusaders were still camped outside Damietta. The Egyptian viceroy Al-Kamil had sufficient reinforcements by this stage to attempt an attack on the Crusaders' camp by a flotilla that he sent down the river. It was driven off chiefly through King John's energy. A few days later, the Muslims built a bridge across the Nile a little above the town. Pelagius organised an unsuccessful raid on the works, but Al-Kamil did not follow up the construction by moving his army across the river. Instead, he made another attack from the water. It was a fierce onslaught, but it was too late. The first contingent of French crusaders had arrived and led the defence. A second attack reached the edge of the camp itself, but was driven back into the river, where many of the Muslim troops were drowned. Then, after the whole French and English army arrived late in October, there was a lull in the fighting. Aladil's death had delayed the help that Al-Kamil expected from Syria. He now awaited an army that his brother Al-Muzam promised him. The Christians also had their own difficulties. They dug a canal from the sea to the river above the Muslim bridge, but they could not fill it. On the night of the 29th of November, a northerly gale blew the sea in over the lowland on which their camp stood. Every tent was flooded and the stores were soaked. Several boats were wrecked and others driven across to the Muslim camp. Horses were drowned. When the flood subsided, there were fish lying about everywhere. A delicacy, says the chronicler Oliver of Paderborn, that everyone would gladly have foregone. To prevent a recurrence, Pelagius ordered a dike to be quickly constructed. All the wreckage, even torn sails and horses' carcasses, were used to raise it higher. The only good result of the flood was that the canal was now filled and Christian boats could sail up the river. 
Hardly was the camp repaired before a serious epidemic struck the army. The victims suffered from a high fever and their skins turned black. At least a sixth of the soldiers died of it, including the Cardinal Robert Courson. The survivors were left feeble and depressed. There followed a winter which was unusually severe. It was well for the Christians that the Muslims also suffered from illness and the cold. Then, early in February 1219, Pelagius considered that the morale of the army could only be restored by activity. On Saturday the 2nd of February, he persuaded the army to set out to attack the Muslims, but a blinding rainstorm forced it back. The following Tuesday, news reached the camp that the Sultan and his army were retreating. The Crusaders hurried across to Aladilia and found the site deserted. After driving back a sortie from the garrison of Damietta, they occupied Aladilia and thus cut the town off completely. Al-Kamil's sudden flight had been caused by the discovery of a conspiracy in his entourage. One of his emirs, Ibn al-Mashtab, was planning to murder him and replace him by his brother, Al-Faiz. In his despair, not knowing how many of his staff were implicated, the Sultan thought of fleeing to Yemen, where his son Al-Musud was governor when he heard that his brother Al-Mazam was at last coming to his help. He moved with his troops southeastward to Ashmoon, where the two brother Sultans met on the 7th of February. Al-Mazam's presence with a large army cowed the conspirators. Ibn al-Mushtub was arrested and sent to prison at Karak, while the prince Al-Faiz was banished to Sinjar and died mysteriously on the way there. Al-Kamil had saved his throne, but at the price of losing Damietta. Even with Al-Mazam's help, Al-Kamil could not now dislodge the Christians. The river, the lagoons and the canals made it impossible for the Muslims to take advantage of their superior numbers. Attacks on the two camps on the West Bank and at Aladilia failed. The Sultan then set up his camp at Fariskar, some six miles south of Damietta, ready to attack the Crusaders in the rear should they try to assault Damietta. Throughout the spring, the stalemate continued. There were fierce battles on Palm Sunday and again on Whit Sunday when the Muslims vainly tried to force their way into Aladilia. In Damietta itself, though food was still plentiful, the garrison had been greatly reduced by disease. But still, the Christians didn't dare to make an assault. In the meantime, the Sultan al-Mazam decided to dismantle Jerusalem. He thought it might be necessary to offer the Christians Jerusalem to terminate the war. If so, it would be handed over in a ruined and untenable condition. The demolition of the walls was begun on the 19th of March. It caused panic in the city. The Muslim citizens believed that the Franks were coming and many of them fled in terror across the Jordan. The empty houses were then pillaged by the soldiers. Some fanatics wished to destroy the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, but the Sultan would not allow it. After Jerusalem, the fortresses of Galilee, Tehran, Safed and Banyas were all dismantled. At the same time, the two Sultans appealed for help throughout the Muslim world, addressing their prayers in particular to the caliph at Baghdad, who promised to send a vast army 
which in fact never came. The icy winter was followed by a burning summer, and the morale of the crusaders fell again. Again, Pelagius insisted on action. After a vigorous Muslim attack on the camp had been driven back on the 20th of July, with heavy losses on both sides, the crusaders concentrated on the bombardment of the town walls of Damietta. While they were so engaged, vainly as the Greek fire used by their defenders did great damage to their siege engines and could not be quenched by wine and acid, another Muslim attack very nearly destroyed the whole Christian army, which was only saved by the sudden fall of darkness. A second assault on the walls on the 6th of August was equally ineffectual. The reverses roused the common soldiers of the crusade to action. They blamed their leaders for laziness and bad generalship. Many of the more distinguished nobles had been killed, including the counts of La Marche and Bar-sur-Seine and William of Chartres, Grand Master of the Templars. Others had returned to Europe. Leopold of Austria left the army in May. He had been the most energetic of the princes, but he'd served for two years in the East and no one could reproach him for returning to his own country. His gallantry had erased the ill repute that his father had won by his quarrels with Richard the Lionheart on the Third Crusade. He took home with him a fragment of the True Cross, but the convoy that took him to Europe carried others whose departure seemed a desertion of the cause. Towards the end of August, while King John of Jerusalem and Pelagius wrangled over strategy, the one advocating a tightening of the siege and the other an attack on the Sultan's camp, the soldiers suddenly took matters into their own hands and on the 29th they poured out in a disorderly mass, attacking the Muslim lines. The Muslims feigned retreat, then counterattacked. Pelagius had tried to assume command, but despite his exhortations, the Italian regiments turned round and fled, and soon there was general panic. It was only the skill of King John and the French and English nobles and the military orders that rescued the survivors and held the camp. The battle had been watched with a sad dismay by a distinguished visitor to the camp, Brother Francis of Assisi. He had come to the east believing, as many other good and unwise persons before and after him have believed, that a peace mission can bring about peace. He now asked permission of Pelagius to go to see the Sultan. After some hesitation, Pelagius agreed, and sent him under a flag of truce to Fariscour. The Muslim guards were suspicious at first, but soon decided that anyone so simple, so gentle, and so dirty must be mad, and treated him with the respect due to a man who had been touched by God. He was taken to the Sultan al-Kamil, who was charmed by him and listened patiently to his appeal, but who was too kind and too civilised to allow him to give witness to his faith in an ordeal by fire, nor would he risk the acrimony that a public discussion on religion would now arouse. Francis was offered many gifts, which he refused, and was sent back with an honourable escort to the Christians. The saint's intervention was not in fact needed, for Al-Kamil himself inclined towards peace. The Nile had risen very little that summer, and Egypt was now threatened with famine. The government needed 
all its resources to rush in food from the neighbouring lands. Al-Mazam was anxious to return with his army to Syria, and neither Sultan was happy about the activities of their brother Al-Ashraf further north. At Baghdad, the Caliph Nasra was in the power of the Khwarezmian Shah Jalal al-Din, whose father Mohammed had destroyed the Seljuk dominion in Iran and founded an empire stretching from the Indus to the Tigris. Jalal al-Din could be used against al-Ashraf, but in view of his known ambitions, it would be dangerous to encourage him too far. Al-Mazam was ready, therefore, to support al-Kamil in any friendly overture to the Crusaders. Sometime in September, a Frankish prisoner came from the Sultan offering a short truce and suggesting that the Muslims would be prepared to cede Jerusalem. The truce was accepted, but the Christians refused to discuss further peace terms. The truce was spent by both sides in repairing their defences. Many of the Crusaders found it also a suitable opportunity for returning home. Some had already left at the beginning of the month, and on the 14th of September, 12 more shiploads sailed away. The loss was recovered a week later, when the French Lord Sauvary of Moulion arrived with a company transported in 10 Genoese galleys. When Al-Kamil broke the truce and attacked the Crusaders on the 26th, the newcomers successfully led the defence. But Al-Kamil still hoped for peace. He knew that Damietta could not hold out for much longer. The garrison was too much weakened by disease to man the walls and his attempts to throw in reinforcements had failed. Nor were the traitors in the Christian camp whose services he had bought of any use. Therefore, at the end of October, he sent two captive knights to give the Crusaders his definite terms. If they would evacuate Egypt, he would return them the true cross. And they could have Jerusalem, all central Palestine and Galilee. The Muslims would only retain the castles of Utrejordain but would pay a tribute for them. It was a genuinely startling offer. With no more fighting, the holy city with Bethlehem, Nazareth and the true cross could be restored to Christendom. King John of Jerusalem advised its acceptance and his own barons and the barons from England, France and Germany supported him. But Cardinal Pelagius would have none of it, nor would the Patriarch of Jerusalem. They thought it wrong to come to terms with the infidel. The military orders agreed with them for strategic reasons. Jerusalem and the Galilean castles had been dismantled, and it would anyhow be impossible to hold Jerusalem without the command of the Jordan castles. The Italians were equally opposed to the terms. However little the Italian maritime cities had liked the breach with Egypt, now the it had come, they wished to secure Damietta as a trading centre. The annexation of inland territory was of no interest to them. The dispute between the two parties grew so bitter that Bishop James of Acre believed the Sultan to have made his offer merely to cause dissension amongst the Crusaders. At Pelagius's insistence, it was refused. A few days later, A scouting party sent by Pelagius reported that the outer wall of Damietta was unmanned. Next day, on Tuesday the 5th of November 1219, the Crusaders advanced in force and swept over it. 
and over the inner wall, hardly opposed. Within the town they found almost the whole garrison sick. Only 3,000 citizens were living, many of them too feeble even to bury the dead. Food and treasure were there in plenty, but disease had done the Christians' work for them. As soon as the town was fully taken over, 300 of the leading citizens were set aside as hostages. The young children were handed to the clergy to be baptised and used for the service of the church and the remainder were sold as slaves. The treasure was to be divided among the crusaders according to each man's rank, but not all the legates' anathemas could prevent thieving and concealment of precious objects by the troops. The future government of Damietta had next to be decided. King John of Jerusalem at once claimed that it should be part of his kingdom of Jerusalem. The military orders, as well as the lay nobility, were on his side. Pelagius maintained, however, that the conquered city belonged to all Christendom, and by that he meant to the church. But with public opinion against him and with John threatening to sail back to Acre, he compromised. The king could govern it until Frederick of Germany joined the crusade. Meanwhile, part of the army had been sent to attack Tanis on the Tanitic mouth of the Nile. A few miles to the east, the town was deserted by its frightened garrison and the crusade returned with further booty, which only led to further quarrels. The Italians in particular believed that they'd been cheated, and when Pelagius would not support them, broke into active revolt. The military orders had to drive them from the city. When winter came, the whole victorious army was smouldering with discontent. Meanwhile, Pelagius, in his elation, believed that he could bring about the final destruction of Islam. The crusade would conquer all Egypt. Help would no doubt come from that gallant Christian potentate, the King of Georgia. Then there was the legendary Prester John, who was waiting, rumour said, to strike a new blow for Christendom. He had believed at first that Prester John was the leader of Ethiopia, who, however, had never replied to a letter from the Pope written. 40 years before, but now there was a real new candidate for the role, an eastern ruler whose name was Genghis Khan. Unfortunately, the intended allies did not work together. In 1220, King George of Georgia's army was routed by Genghis Khan's Mongols on the border of Azerbaijan, and the great military power built up by Queen Tamar was destroyed. The victors showed no interest in attacking the Arab Empire. More serious cooperation was expected from the greatest ruler of Western Europe, Frederick, King of Germany and Sicily. Frederick had taken the cross in 1215, but Pope Innocent granted him leave to postpone the crusade until he'd put the affairs of Germany in order. Frederick still delayed. He'd promised the papacy to hand over the throne of Sicily, to which he had succeeded as a boy, to his young son Henry. But he soon discovered that by reiterating his determination to go crusading, he could defer the division of his kingdoms indefinitely and could bargain for his imperial coronation by the Pope. His desire to go to the East was, however, genuine, though ambition rather than piety was its true motive. He had inherited his father Henry VI's Eastern aspirations, but he would not try to realise these except as emperor, with his European kingdom secure in his grasp. His intention should have been clear to the Pope, but Honorius, who had once been his tutor, was a simple man who regarded his promises as genuine and continued 
continued to send messages to the Crusaders in Egypt, telling them to expect the German Hohenstaufen army. The crusade, therefore, stood still, and during its inaction, the quarrels between Pelagius, King John, the Italians, and the military orders intensified. A march on Cairo immediately after the fall of Damietta might have succeeded. For Al-Kamil was in a truly desperate position. His army was weak, his subjects were starving. Al-Mazam insisted on taking his forces back to Syria, fearing trouble in the north and believing that Islam could best be helped now by an attack on Acre itself. Expecting every day to hear of a Christian advance, Al-Kamil established his camp at Talca, a few miles up the Damietta branch of the Nile, and threw up fortifications on either side of the river to meet the Crusader offensive but it never came. Because of their own quarrels and the lack of a truly decisive leader such as Richard the Lionheart had been on the Third Crusade, the leaders of the Fifth Crusade missed their greatest opportunity for victory, for by the time they were ready to advance, Al-Kamil would be ready for them. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, can I ask a favour? I'd be really grateful if you wanted to recommend it to a friend, since that will help get more listeners. Or, of course, a review would be absolutely brilliant as well. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear about how the Fifth Crusade went from triumph to tragedy.